Turn with me once again to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 2. Nehemiah, chapter 2. This book is, uh, I don't know if you got the feel of it last week, but uh, Nehemiah is different from a lot of the books in the Bible because it's narrative, but it's written in the first person. And it it feels personal. You're going to feel it in the upcoming weeks. Um, It almost feels like we're reading Nehemiah's journal. As we read together the book of Nehemiah and we explore its chapters and stories and prayers and we're going to see a man's intimate joys, his frustrations, his sorrows, his tears, his bewilderments, his prayers, his accomplishments. In chapter 1, last week, Nehemiah received troubling news about his hometown. That his people were in great trouble. That there was shame and disgrace. And that the walls of Jerusalem were demolished and its gates burned with fire. And the Bible tells us, Nehemiah wept. I wept, he says. And then we listened as Nehemiah confessed his sins and he repented to the Lord. Praying that with faith God would once again gather His people from all the corners of heaven where they had been scattered and bring them back to the presence of their God. Through the tears, Nehemiah had hope for revival for the Lord's people. That one day they might rise again. That one day the city of Jerusalem would be rebuilt. After all, the name Nehemiah actually means the Lord consoles or the Lord comforts. Could it be that the Lord plans to console his people through this very man? This Nehemiah. Listen to the conclusion of his prayer from chapter 1. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I was the cupbearer of the king. What does Nehemiah have planned? Chapter 1 leaves us asking the question, what does the Lord have planned for his people And for the city that bears his name. Could it be that after all the shame, all the disgrace, the war, the destruction that's come upon this city and upon this people, that somehow they could rise again and rebuild? Can Jerusalem really rise from the ash heap? Well, let's stand together as we begin to find out. And we hear the comforting, consoling words of the Lord. Let's stand. Nehemiah, chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. 
And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases you, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And let a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governor's of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem and were broken down, and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on onto the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. And I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. You may be seated. So chapter 2 brings us, fast forwards us four months after Nehemiah first received the bad news about Jerusalem. And it brings us forward 
to the table of a king named Artaxerxes. And Artaxerxes was a Persian king, the son of Ahasuerus, who happened to be the, the husband of a woman, maybe you've heard of her, Esther. And if you've read the book of Esther, some of us have been reading it together in small group, then you know one thing about Persian kings, which is this, Persian kings love their wine. So, let's just say that Nehemiah, happening to be the cupbearer of the king, has been put in a favorable position considering that he is the man who day in, day out, brings the wine to this king. And on top of that, he's in a very trustworthy position because in those days, people had a habit of trying to sprinkle poison into the king's wine. So you had to have a guy that you could trust wasn't going to offer you a cup of death. So he's a favorable position, a trustworthy position. And chapter 2 says that Nehemiah was in the midst of serving the king his drinks, and the king noticed something had changed. The king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing as you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And then I was very much afraid. Since the troubling report from Jerusalem for four months, Nehemiah had been going into the presence of the king and keeping a good face. He says, I hadn't let on that anything was wrong day in, day out. I had attended parties with the king. I had served him. I hadn't ruined his mood. But he let down his guard on this day, four months later, because he was finally ready, number one, to act in faith. And when that moment to act in faith comes and the king says, what are you asking? He says, I was very much afraid. When the king notices, the kings of Persia were not the most perceptive guys, but he perceives there's something wrong with the heart and he, his heart trembles. He's afraid. He realizes that moment to act in faith has finally come. And that twinge of fear that we often feel in our flesh that maybe God isn't going to come through for us, he feels that fear. But with courage, Nehemiah acts in faith and he tells the king exactly what is on his heart. Verse 3. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? In chapter 1, we saw Nehemiah clinging to the promise of God. We heard it in his prayers. He says, God, you promised, you said if your people will repent and return to you, that you will gather them from the ends of the earth, no matter where they've been scattered, and bring them back. But believing and clinging to the promises of God will lead to acting in faith. This is what gave Nehemiah the courage to be honest with the king, even when he was deathly afraid. He's clinging to the promise of God. He believes the word of God, and that word is going to change the way that he lives and acts. And so he acts. 
in faith. Even when he's afraid. Even when he's uncertain what might come. He is unable to remain silent. He's unable to remain still. When he believes the promise of God, he must act in faith. Brothers and sisters, if we truly believe the promises of God laid out for us in His Word, we necessarily must live and act in faith. This is what convinces men and women to abandon their lives, abandon their jobs, and to go to some foreign country to share the gospel with people. This is what convinces parents to enter the fearful unknown of foster care. This is what convinces husbands and wives to believe that God can rebuild a failing marriage. This is what convinces a rinky-dink church in Newberry, South Carolina that somehow they can change the world. It's a belief in the promise of God and a willingness to act in We must firstly act in faith. And as we do, secondly, we must trust His grace. Let me read to you verse 4. Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I love that. How the king, there's like no beating around the bush. (laughs) Uh, Nehemiah doesn't ask anything, but he knows he wants something. What are you asking? Just get it out there. And as Nehemiah prepares to make his request, as he acts in faith, he prays one last time, trusting in the grace of the Lord. Verse 5. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And we see as the story progresses, Nehemiah's fears begin to melt away, and he grows bolder in his faith, because then he realizes, Hey, God's actually working this thing out. And so then he asks for something else. Also, I'm going to need you to give me some letters for protection, you know, so that the guys, as I'm traveling through, the governors all know I'm on a sanctioned mission and they don't attack me. Oh, and also I want you to give a letter so that I can have lumber from your private forest to rebuild the walls. And you know what? He got everything he asked for and more. Because we read in verse 9, the king also even sent captains from his army and horsemen. Why did all of this happen? Verse 8. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. Why did all this happen? Nehemiah knows. And he wants us to know. No other reason other than the good hand of God was upon me. Nehemiah trusting in his grace. 
Brothers and sisters, we don't put trust in kings. We don't put trust in chariots or bosses or money or jobs or circumstances or our talents and abilities. We put our trust in His grace. The good hand of my God is all that I need. There's nothing we need other than what God has given us through His grace in Jesus Christ. John writes, But to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. If you are God's child this morning, you're His son or His daughter, there is nothing more that you need than to trust in your Father. Paul encourages us to remember, as the story of Nehemiah demonstrates to us, that he is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think. Nehemiah prayed for four months that the Lord would give him success with the king. He read the word of God. He clung to the promises he found there. He acted in faith and he trusted in God's grace, the unmerited favor of the Lord, the good hand of God. We've seen the good hand, the good hands of God our Savior stretched out on the cross to show us that we have His grace forever and ever, all those who believe. We have begun by grace, so as we act in faith, may we continue to trust in His grace. Well, in verse 10, we're introduced to the reason, one of the major reasons why God's people continue in disgrace and shame. And it's because they have opponents all around who've been opposing any change in Jerusalem. And I want to read to you about these opponents, Sanballat and uh, Tobiah. And I want to read to you in a little bit more literal reading. It says that it was evil to them, a great evil that a man was coming to seek the good of the sons of Israel. Verse 10. Let me read that to you again. This is how these men felt, Sanballat and Tobiah. It was evil, a great evil, that a man had come seeking the good of the sons of Israel. And I, I just want that to sink in. Really, the enemies of God only deserve a parenthetical aside at this point. So we'll come back and we'll deal with them later. Uh, but despite the obvious opponents on all sides, Nehemiah makes his way into Jerusalem and he stays there three nights. And on the third night, verse 12, then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode, and I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. And so you can picture Nehemiah. He's at, it's, it's dark out. He maybe has a torch or two lit, and he proceeds through the darkness trying to make his way around the perimeter of the city. Just himself and a few close friends. It must have been eerie seeing the remains, some of it probably untouched since it was destroyed 70 plus years before. 
burnt stones, gaping holes in the, in the wall where gates once were, but now there's just ashes. Probably mixed in among the rubble, broken pots, splintered spears, broken shield. He tells us it gets so bad in one place, the wall is, is such a mess that there's not even a way to pass by. And so he has to turn back around and go the way he came. Nehemiah wanted to assess the damage for himself. He had heard reports, but he wanted to go out and see for himself. Thirdly, he inspects the walls. Number three, inspect the walls. Home inspections are always painful. And uh, I wish, I wish uh, Brian Niger was here. I'm sure he could regale us with uh, stories about the construction that's going on. But we've, Chad, you're a contractor. You know a little bit about that. Uh, home inspections are always painful because you're always in dread about what the home inspector is going to say, right? Because you know something's wrong. <laughs> He's going to find something. What's he going to find? Is it going to be a leak? Something's not up to code. How much is it going to cost? And it's an inspector's job to look for imperfections and problems. He shows you the truth. You and I love to live in our little fantasy worlds, right? And we like to pretend nothing's going wrong. Everything is fine under the floorboards of our house. (laughs) But an inspection puts all of our illusions to rest. Because all of a sudden, there it is on paper... An honest assessment of all of the problems. How many of Nehemiah's brothers and sisters were living in a fantasy world? They'd just gotten used to seeing the rubble. It become commonplace and normal to see the walls laying flat and ashes for gates, eking out an existence. And a man comes along seeking their good and they put on smiles on their faces saying, oh, hello. Oh, yeah, I'm fine. Things are going well. Things are great. But in the night, as Nehemiah goes out and sees things for himself, there are no more smiles. There is no more makeup, covering up. Just the honest truth. And Nehemiah, the man who comes seeking the good of his brothers and sisters, inspects the walls. Brothers and sisters, we have to inspect our walls. We have to be willing to admit the truth. The place where you are living is not really a city. It's a desolate wasteland, and just because you call it a city does not make it any less a desolate wasteland. Why do we try to hide the truth? We make excuses for ourselves. We say, Oh, I'm fine. How are you? Nothing's wrong. I'm doing great. My life is perfect. We're swimming along. Family's good. All the while, Jesus, the man who has come seeking our good, inspects our walls and he sees the crumbling pile of stones and the ash heaps that we call gates 
And he says, you're doing fine, huh? Doesn't look that way. Imagine with me for a second that you're trying to sell your home. And you have a home inspector who is scheduled to come on Tuesday morning. But on Monday, you have a grease fire incident. And the house burns down. Imagine you wake up the next morning and you go back out to your house and it's still smoldering from the grease fire. And you're standing behind the home inspector and you have your fingers crossed that your home is going to pass inspection. How foolish would that be? But isn't that the way we all are in our own power? We ignore the truth about our lives. That they are a pile of stones, burnt stones, and burnt gates. And we hope somehow that when we stand before God, we're going to pass the code. We're going to pass inspection. I hope, I hope, I hope I pass. What? You're living in a desolate wasteland, brother. Nothing about any of us, nothing about our life is up to code. You have broken every law of God. What good is it to pretend and to try to hide your sin and have some false hope that somehow you're going to pass inspection on the last day? What good is it to hide and pretend? All the while, the man that we need, the man who has come seeking our good, stands there. But he's of no help to us until we are willing to admit the truth about ourselves. He's like a doctor. Until we're willing to admit where the pain is, where the problem is, he can't help us. Many men and women down through the ages have surveyed their lives and they know their lives are a wreck. And they've done what they could to put a couple stones on top of each other trying to rebuild their lives. It never works. Because it's not we who need to inspect ourselves and do what we can to rebuild our lives. This is the purpose of God's Word that as we read the Bible, Jesus Himself comes into our lives and inspects all the corners and the gates and the walls that are crumbling. The walls of our individual lives. The walls of our church. In the story of Nehemiah, there's not a single wall that still remains standing. And yet, so often I think we like to picture our churches as being a place with, uh, you know, there's a lot of places where the walls are crumbling, but there's one place I know that's still standing. There's one place that if you go by, it's still stalwart, it's standing tall, and that's the Chad Gate. Right? My section of the wall is still standing tall. Everybody else, they're pretty much a mess. My life, though, is pretty good. I'm looking pretty good. I'm standing pretty tall. This sermon, let me tell you, they need to hear that. Oh, man, that person, they are struggling with this. Are you hearing what they're saying? So often we like to pretend that there is still a, st- a section that's standing tall. Uh-uh. Nehemiah, you know what? He says, you're the, you're the section that was so bad I couldn't even get by. 
We have to be honest when we are inspecting the walls. If you and I are going to be built into the new walls of Jerusalem, Jesus has to come quietly and inspect you too, little burnt stone that you are, laying on the ground. You've got to allow Jesus, by His Word and by His people, to dust you off, to inspect you, and be willing to say about yourself, I am a flattened wall. I am a burnt gate. Ah. When we look into the building code of God, we're willing to admit the truth about ourselves. Now that's something Jesus can work with. We come to Him, convicted by His Word that we're sinners, that we're broken, we're torn down, we're destroyed, we're dead. We need a Savior who can build us into a new city, a new dwelling place for the Lord. We can't do it ourselves. And we cry out from the darkness. Revive us, O Lord. Save us from our disgrace. Redeem these fallen stones. We must inspect the walls, brothers and sisters. Take a look at our lives. Take a look at our church in view of God's word. Lastly, number four, let us rise and build. Verse 17. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. He says, open your eyes. We can all see that we're living in shambles here. You see it. You see the trouble we're in. You see the broken down walls all around us. Come, join me. Let's rebuild this city together. Verse 18. And I told them of the hand of God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Rise and build. We have to realize something. We can't do a single thing until our Savior Jesus, like Nehemiah, comes to us and calls us out of our graves and says, Rise! Let's build. Rise up. We are dead. We are a desolate wasteland. We are living in Jerusalem, the city of graves, Nehemiah calls it. We need a man seeking our good to call us out and to say, Rise! And build. When we look into the perfect law of God, we see how sinful and broken we are. That we are the ones who burned down our own city. We're the Hellions who destroyed our own Jerusalem. Friend, we need somebody like Nehemiah who's going to come along and who's going to bring us from death to life. And the good news this morning is that the Son of God came from a faraway place, from heaven itself, to where we live, to earth. And when He came and He surveyed the walls and He looked at humanity, He said, the reports are true. This place is a desolation. Every wall is flattened. Every gate is burnt. And this Jesus was rejected by His own people, jeered, despised, And we hung him 
on a cross outside the walls of Jerusalem. And yet as he suffered there on the cross and his hands were spread, the good hand of God was upon us. Because by his wounded hands we are healed and we who are dead who believe rise. Just like Jesus did on the third day, we rise. And he calls us to rise and build. Brothers and sisters, we we have to remember and realize as we look at this story that Jesus calls us into his work. It's not that we welcome him into something that we're doing. Jesus calls us and says, hey, come join me. Let's build this new Jerusalem together. The people joined Nehemiah in a work that he already had planned out for them. We join Jesus in a work that, believe it or not, he's begun since the foundation of the world. And that's why here at College Street Baptist Church, everything that we do is according to this. We don't come up with our own plans, our own devices. We're simply joining our Savior who has said to us, rise and build. As we close this morning, this passage asks one lingering question. Which side of the wall are you on? Verse 19, the enemies of God reappear. But when Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper. And we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. You have no portion, no right, no claim in Jerusalem. As the walls are going to go up in chapters 3 and 4, Nehemiah confronts us and asks us, as the walls go up, which side of the wall will you be standing on? Are you among the people of God, acting in faith, trusting His grace, inspecting the walls, rising to build? Or will you be on the outside, jeering, scoffing, mocking? conniving, seeking the destruction of the city, despising the labor of God's people. When the construction of the new Jerusalem is complete, where will you stand? Inside the walls or outside? When our Nehemiah returns to survey the finished work, where will he find you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the privilege that we have to act in faith on the promises that you have made and to trust in your grace that your good hand will prosper us along the way as we allow your word to inspect our lives, inspect our church, And continuously call us from death to life to rise and join in building this new Jerusalem. Lord Jesus, we pray, stand at the front as the foreman, as the captain of this church, overseeing the work. May our hands be busy 
with the good news of Jesus making disciples and building a new Jerusalem. Lord Jesus, I pray if there's anyone here who does not know where they stand, whether they are inside or outside the walls, that they would seek you, that they would cry out to you, that they would find salvation and mercy and grace at your feet, that they would believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.